First Thessalonians uh, chapter one, verses two to 10, and then we'll go to Second Thessalonians chapter one. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sakes. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. I come to the book of Thessalonians um, often in my reading program, at least twice a year, and it's a book that warms me. It's a book that encourages me. Uh, it's a book about a, a church that is doing well, about a church that seems to be thriving in the midst of circumstances which we might say, well, how can anything thrive in that kind of a setting? And this church is doing so well, and the evidence of God's saving work in them is so great that every time Paul thinks of them and when he gets reports of them, he just gives praise to God. And he brags about them to other churches as people come through wherever he might be in the churches that he is around. One of the things that Thessalonians talks about quite a bit, both first and second, is the coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Christ, the day of the Lord. We will get into that in, a, in two or three or four weeks, but one of the things that, about these books is their whole lives are shaped and increasingly shaped by their expectation that Jesus Christ is coming again. If you were listening when we read from First Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, and they turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait from Christ or wait for Christ from heaven. Second uh, Thessalonians is about a concern. Well, has the second coming already come for some? And Paul's reminding them, no, it's, it's not happened yet. It will come. And so it describes the way that they live their life in anticipation of this event. I think that's what I'm thinking of last week and this week as I've been trying to open at least these few verses to us is how do we live in that light? What is the evidence that God is still at work in us even in the midst of difficult times and difficult circumstances? 
Why does Paul give such in, uh, constant thanksgiving for these people? What is it in them that he sees that causes him to give thanks to God? What is it that causes him to boast? We saw last week that one of the marks of the church is uh, that they are in God the Father and in Christ Jesus the Lord. That's our existence. That's our life. That's where we get our life bread from. That's where we get our existence from. But now he describes a number of other characteristics. He will describe a flourishing faith. He will describe their increasing love, their enduring perseverance, and then their kingly perspective or their kingdom perspective. And that's just what I want to spend a few moments with us this morning as we uh, conclude our time here today is just looking at those four things. Evidence is that God is at work in us. Things that I think we would do well to pray for one another here in this church. Things that Paul prayed for this Thessalonian church. And in fact, their prayers were answered. So the first thing that he gives thanks for, he says, we ought always to give thanks to you or to God, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Or in another text, uh, another version, it says your faith is flourishing. Paul, Paul, Paul felt compelled as he heard the reports of them, as he had been among them. He felt compelled to thank God for this work of flourishing faith in these believers. It's something that we ought not to take for granted. It's something that we ought to think that when we are growing in our faith, when we find ourselves in a different place today than we were a couple of months ago, when we find our trust in God a little bit stronger, when we find our commitment to his word a little bit deeper, who do we thank? Do you thank your discipline? Do you, do you thank the church? Do you thank the radio program that you listen to? Or do you thank God who is at work in you? The Bible tells us again and again that it is we who plant and we who water, um, but it is God who gives the increase or God who gives the growth. And so as Paul surveyed this church and he picked out a few things that were going on and that he was witnessing, he says, this is God. This can only be God. And he thanked God then that their faith was flourishing. Earlier in, in Thessalonians um, chapter one, he described and thanked God for the work of faith among them. And when we were going through James uh, a couple years ago, we stopped and, and said James was reminding us that our faith must work. It's not that we work for our salvation. It's not that we earn our salvation in any way. It's not that anything that we do will gain us acceptance before God. Rather, it's that when we have been truly saved by God, our, the evidence of that is our good works. The evidence that we have changed and been born again is that we want to serve, that we joyously do it, that it's the result of our salvation, not the reason of our salvation. And so when Paul first met them, he says, I thank God for your work of faith. I thank God that the evidence that God has saved you is that you are, your faith has is, is got feet and it's got hands and it's got a voice out in the community. But then a little bit later, in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, he says that he prayed that God might complete what was lacking in their faith. I think we understand, right, that faith is not sort of a one-time uh, and, and always thing, um, that, that faith can grow and that faith can go back. We can fall away from faith. We can have little faith, like the disciples in the boat that was rocked by the storm. And they were all worried and they, they were flustered and they said, Christ, you gotta wake up. Like, what's the matter with you? And Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves and said, oh, ye of little faith. 
And then just a little bit later, a centurion comes to him with one of his servants who is suffering horribly. He had had a fall and he was suffering horribly. And he said, Jesus, would you heal my servant? And Jesus says, I'll come to your house. He says, no, no, you don't need to come to my house. I'm a guy with a lot of authority. I just tell these people what to do and they do it. If you just say, be healed, he'll be healed. And Jesus says, I, have I not seen one with as great a faith as this man? So faith can be little, it can be great. We can fall back. Faith, faith can be static or faith can flourish. And what Paul is seeing in these believers is a flourishing faith. It, it's a picture really of, um, of like a plant that flourishes. That's kind of the context of the word. Um, some of you are gardeners. I, I'm not a gardener, but I can notice a, a plant that flourishes. And if you put it in the place that it's supposed to be in the garden, if it needs lots of sun, you put it where it gets lots of sun and you fertilize the, the soil around it and uh, you, you water it and you tend it, it will flourish. And you look at it and it comes out and the colors in it are brilliant colors and there's, there's no mold and mildews on it and the flowers, if it's a flowering plant, are, are just gorgeous on it. You say, wow, that plant is flourishing. Well, it's the same for the people of God. That when we submit ourselves to the Son of Christ in our lives and when we cultivate our lives with the Word of God and the promises of God and the truth of God, when we walk with God in the valleys and in the dark places and we come out the other side, we find that our faith is flourishing and people might comment and say to us, how is it that, that you are singing? How is it that you are praising? How is it that your faith is flourishing? And it's flourishing because God has been at work in you. And so as Paul comments on these Christians he has been with them and then he's had a report from them that God has answered his prayer that their faith might increase and indeed it is a flourishing faith. Oh, might we be those who are characterized as a people of God here as those who have a flourishing faith, as those who pray for one another that our faith might increase. How, how can you pray for somebody maybe who is sick and in the hospital and has just got a bad diagnosis? How can you pray for somebody who is troubled by the world that we live in? You can be specific and you say, God, would you help their faith to flourish? Would you increase their faith, Lord? That is how we can pray as Paul prayed for these Thessalonian believers. The second thing that Paul comments about them he says, not only is their faith flourishing, but he says that their love, of, the love of every one of them for one another is increasing. There's a quality about their love. There's a fullness of their love. It's not just one or two. It says every one of you are loving one another and it's increasing. It's, it's not this static thing. There's this growing love that you have for one another in the midst of these difficult times in which you find yourselves living in. And he looks at this and he gives thanks to God because God is the source of love, is he not? What does the Bible tell us? The Bible says you love because he first loved you. How do we know what love looks like? How do we understand what the love of God is like unless we first experienced it? And we, we see the love of God um, shown in so many ways. One of the ones that we can quickly go to is for God so loved the world that he sat by and watched it spin around and say, wow, what a good world I've made. No, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The love of God was expressed through the 
incredible, priceless, matchless gift of Jesus Christ, his son, that all who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And his love is demonstrated in other ways. In Romans, he says, the love of God is demonstrated towards you that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Before you had even turned to Christ, before you had even responded to Christ, God had showed his love towards you. Well, we can do that, can we not? Somebody hurts you or offends you amongst the body of Christ. And remember, the body of Christ is what? It's a people of God. It is the bride of Christ. It is a family. We are brothers and sisters. He is our father. We should treat one another as we treat brothers and sisters. And so if one offends us, we should love them. If one hurts us, we should love them. If one is embittered towards us, we should act in love towards them. We shouldn't wait for them to come for us. We shouldn't wait for them to change their mind about how they talk to us. We should go to them. We should love them. We should demonstrate our love towards one another. And he says that's what was going on in this church of these Thessalonian believers. And this, too, was an answer to prayer because earlier, months earlier, as Paul had been thinking about this church in the first letter, he writes to them, he says, and he prays that God would cause them to increase and overflow with love to one another just as we do for you. And now here we are a number of months later, and God has answered that prayer. And Timothy has brought back this report about how their faith is flourishing and their love is increasing. And so Paul gives thanks to God. He says, God, thank you for working amongst these people. Why do we gather together as God's people? Why does God gather us as his people? Well, for one reason, it's so that we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How do we hear about the needs of one another unless we gather together? How do we stimulate one another to love and good deeds if we don't know somebody is in need of help? What if somebody who goes to the hospital and has an operation and they come home and they're going to be incapacitated for a couple months and you hear about that and you say, oh yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place in the church that we can go sign up and we can give meals and meals can be delivered to them for two or three or four weeks, however many they need. There's so many examples of how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds as we gather together. And so as these people gathered together, they did just that. They talked about somebody who maybe had just been thrown in prison and they needed to take the meals because they weren't fed in prison. They relied on the support of friends and family. Maybe somebody had just been released from prison and they'd been beat up and beat with rods and they had cuts and bruises and they need to be cared for and loved. Paul summarizes Timothy's report. Remember, he had sent Timothy because he was worried about them in the midst of all their tribulations. How were they doing? And Timothy, he says, but now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. You know, one of the greatest things that I think we could rejoice in as a church is if people visited us. Maybe they stayed for a week or two and then they went back to their, their churches and they said, you couldn't believe that those people of God at Parksville. My, how they love one another. Their, their faith is flourishing. You should hear the conversations. You, you, should, you should hear the things, the, the way they talk about God. You should hear how they endured trials. It's, it was so refreshing to be among them. And I find that so often, by the way, loved ones, when I go out for coffee with you, when I hear the testimony of what's going on, I do believe God is doing this, but our faith can flourish even more and our love can increase even more. Jesus prayed for his disciples. He said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples 
that you love one another. That's a mark of being a child of God. That's one of the evidences that we have been actually redeemed by God and brought into his family is that we love others because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And as those who have been adopted into God's family and changed by God's great love and mercy and grace, we now begin to act like our father. In fact, John would say a little bit later, we know that we have passed from death to life. Do you ever wonder if you're a Christian? Wonder if you're saved? Well, John gives us five or six evidences that you can look at in your life and say, yeah, I, I know I'm a Christian. He says one of them is we know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brothers who does not, whoever does not love abides in death. In another place, he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It's one of the marks of a redeemed people of God is our love. How can we be anything other than what our Father is like? And so this is why Paul praises God and gives thanks because he says, God, I I know you're at work. I know you've redeemed them because their faith is flourishing and their love is growing. They know you. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brothers. And so Paul is rejoicing. He's thanking God as he hears the news of this church, these people, because their faith is flourishing. And the love of all of them for one another is increasing. Paul also notices some other things, though. He's, he's into bragging, and bragging is not something that we encourage necessarily. Um, bragging can quickly turn the attention to us and in fact it can be sinful and we are to strive for humility but bragging about what God has done is a good thing bragging because we see God at work in, 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 in the lives of individuals coming to faith um, maintaining them in faith healing broken re- re- relationships restoring them that is a reason to brag and so Paul is bragging to The churches of God, I love that phrase even, the churches of God, they are God's people. And what's he bragging about? Well, he's bragging about their perseverance. He says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring about the endurance and or, or, and, and sorry, and your persecutions and, and the afflictions that you are enduring. They're hanging in there. They're not giving up. They're not walking away. They are persevering. They are enduring in their perseverance. The perseverance is just isn't a sort of a, um, a flash in the pan sort of thing. It's a rock, steady, ongoing perseverance. I don't know what the church in Thessalonica was experiencing. You can read other uh, New Testament texts and you get a sense of persecution. Persecution could be losing your house, could be losing your job, it could be thrown in jail, it could be being harassed, um, uh, it could be beaten. Uh, there are so many, it could be economic. There are so many ways in which the Bible describes um, persecution. Uh, you can read chapter 11 of Hebrews and find at the end those who didn't have their lives saved and they were beaten and they were sawn in two and they lived in caves. So persecution comes in many forms. 
But the church in Thessalonica was being persecuted. They were suffering. Their afflictions were great. And they were hanging in there. I look at um, our church, us. I've not been thrown in jail yet. I've not lost my job because of my testimony in Christ and the word of God that I believe in. But I believe it's coming. I, I know some of you are probably experiencing this already. Some of you who are in school, you've experienced the harassment because of your view of Christ and your belief that there is only one way to salvation because your ethical stand on certain issues related to sexuality and sex before marriage. And uh, some of you maybe are at, uh, at risk of losing your job because you're standing firm on your convictions of what is right and what is wrong. But you can see of some of the things that are happening in our country and some of the shifts that are taking place that it probably won't be long before Christians will be backed into a very difficult corner. And we too will be suffering for our faith, for the word of God and the testimony of Christ. Paul says one of the evidences of a true faith is that you persevere, that you endure through those difficulties. And again, it's because God has been at work in us, but it's because we have our eyes fixed on Christ. Because we believe that our persecutions, however serious they might be, and even if they take our life, have no impact on us in the life to come. And so Paul, as he looks at this church and he's thanking God for them and he's bragging about them, he's saying, oh man, you wouldn't believe the way that their, their faith is flourishing. They are trusting God with each new challenge that comes their way. They fix their eyes on God. They trust in him even more. They committed to his word. They're committed to his promises. And their love, like you, you can't believe what's going on in that church amongst these people of God. My, how they love one another. And they're making it. They're suffering all kinds of stuff. And yet they're hanging in there. They're persevering. They fix their eyes on Jesus. To the church in Smyrna, Christ wrote, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And then for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Blessed are you, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is a connection between our persecution for righteousness' sake and the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. There's that connection again between earthly persecutions and afflictions and our reward in heaven. The fourth thing which Paul comments on, which is a little bit difficult, and I don't fully understand it, I confess, but I'm working on it. He says, for this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. As I work through this verse, I think one of the things that's absolutely clear to me is they had a kingdom perspective. They had their eyes on the kingdom of heaven. They, they, Paul says that you're, you're accounted worthy. You are declared worthy 
of the kingdom of heaven because of what you have suffered, because of the righteous judgment of God. So they had this eternal perspective, which I think is absolutely necessary to sustain us when we go through difficult times. You know, Christians are not the only ones that suffer. You know that, right? There are people around the world that are suffering because of their ethnicity. You think of the Uyghurs in China. There are people in, around the world that are suffering because of the color of their skin and persecuted because of the color of their skin. There are people around the world that are suffering just because they have committed to a particular practice that is deemed a threat to a particular government. They are harassed. They are thrown in prison. They are kept in prison. So Christians are not the only ones who suffer and are persecuted. But as Christians, we, are suffer, we suffer and are persecuted because of our testimony of Jesus Christ and our commitment to fear God and trust his word. But there's a connection between our suffering and the life to come. I, I don't know if that's true about the vast majority of suffering that happens in us, but what gives them hope? How do, they make, how do they make sense of what they're being persecuted with? Can they say that it is God's will that I suffer because I do this practice? Well, no, we can say, though, at times, it is God's will that we suffer for righteousness. It is God's will that we might suffer for doing what is good. It is God's will that we suffer to perfect in us what God wants to do in us this side of eternity. And we we suffer because we know there is a connection between what God is doing in us now and in the world to come. And it's that perspective, that eternal perspective, that kingdom perspective that helps us endure the afflictions and the sufferings that we face. This is what helps people like Peter and uh, he, the one he was in the prison with when they had been beat. It says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. See, there's a purpose in their suffering. There's a meaning in their suffering. There's a, there's a connection with God and what he's doing and with the kingdom that is to come. In another place, it says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. In another place, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while it is necessary that you are grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't fully understand that connection, but there is a connection between our suffering, our hope, our commitment to the belief in the return of Christ. And when he comes back, it's like our suffering will be vindicated and all of it will rebound in glory and praise and honor to Christ who has kept us. Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator in doing what is good. You know, we, we ought not to think as Christians that suffering is a mark that God has abandoned us. That somehow what we ought to seek is peace and prosperity and health that that is the mark of God's love and mercy on us is that everything goes well in our lives all the time. Loved ones, that is not Christian faith. In the divine plan, the suffering of God's people plays a central role and should not be construed as a sign of God's rejection or neglect of his own. If you lose your job because you won't bend the rules, it's not a sign that God has rejected you. 
If you were mocked and ridiculed by your friends at school because of your stand on being created in the image of God, male and female, it is not a sign that God has rejected you. Sometimes our suffering is a very indication that God is for us. One more verse that says, as Paul went through various towns, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you live with this kingdom perspective? That you are a citizen of heaven. That one day Jesus Christ is going to return and all your suffering will be vindicated. The righteous judgment of God will be seen to be right and just in your suffering. You're a subject of heaven, loved ones. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Christ is your Lord. You're sons and daughters of God. If they hated Christ, they will hate you and I. But these new believers in Thessalonica were living in this reality of intense persecution. But as I sort of put in my own words, this is how I think, I hope I would respond. I'm good with this. I'm okay because I'm entrusting myself to God. And if it was God's will that I should suffer for his name, I'm okay to suffer for his name. I will entrust myself to my faithful God and creator. I know that God is working in me. I know that God is shaping me. I know that God is readying me for a kingdom to come. I'll hang in there. Leon Morris has written a paragraph on suffering, which I know it's a bit long, but I wanted to read because I, I think it helps. The New Testament does not look on suffering in quite the same way as do most modern people. To us, it's not something to be avoided at all costs. Now, while the New Testament does not gloss over the aspect of suffering, it does not lose sight either of the fact that in the good providence of God, suffering is often the means of working out God's eternal purpose. It develops in sufferers qualities of character. It teaches valuable lessons. Suffering is not thought of as something which may possibly be avoided by the Christian, for him, it's inevitable. He must live out his life and develop his Christian character in a world which is dominated by non-Christian ideas. His faith is not some fragile thing to be kept in a kind of spiritual cotton wool, insulated from all shocks. It's robust. It is to be manifested in the fires of trouble and in the furnace of affliction. And not only is it to be manifested there, but in part, at any rate, it is to be fashioned in such places. The very troubles and afflictions which the world heaps on the believers become under God the means of making him what he ought to be. Suffering, when we have come to regard it in this light, is not thought of as evidence that God has forsaken us, but as evidence that God is with us. What characterizes the people of God? How do we know that God is at work in us as his people, that we are a redeemed church? Our faith is flourishing. Our love is increasing. Our perseverance is enduring. And our mindset is on heaven and the kingdom to come.
May God be with us as a people of God in the days to come. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for this people here that call PFBC their home. Father, may we pray more and more for one another that our faith might flourish, that our love might increase, that as we face challenges and afflictions and persecution because of our confidence in you and our commitment to your word, that we might experience your goodness to us and see these same marks growing and increasing even in greater measure amongst us. Father, I pray that as people are drawn to this place to visit or to worship or to see what all the cars are about in the parking lot, that as they walk in here, they will see a redeemed people of God, thrilled to be part of the kingdom of God, full of joy, full of peace, flourishing faith, increasing love. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.